Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. KCBS Radio, original podcasts. Dinner has long ended at the Hotel Moana in Honolulu on the night of February 28, 1905. Guests are winding down for the evening. We are back where we left off at the beginning of episode one. Jane Stanford's final moments. Jane was already in her room a little after 8 p.m. that evening. She was busy getting ready for bed, and despite her light dinner, she was still conscious of the heavy lunch she'd eaten earlier that day. A rich woman with a typically rich diet, she sometimes suffered digestion issues. The usual treatment she preferred for an upset stomach was bicarbonate of soda, or baking soda. That night, in particular, she asked Bertha to get some for her. Bertha scooped some out of a bottle Jane had used for a long time and left half a teaspoon of the soda on Jane's nightstand. Jane offered some to Bertha as well, but she declined. Jane didn't take the soda right away. She wanted to let her stomach settle a bit first and drink some more water. Around this time, she took a capsule of cascara, a common laxative at the time that contained a very small amount of strychnine. Bertha herself had taken the laxative for years. All seemed well, and Bertha and Jane's maid, May, went to bed in the nearby room. But the pair would not rest for long before Jane's cries for help shook them back to consciousness. The sound of pain was heard not only by them, but by their neighbors. The two women rushed to Jane's room, only to find their employer clutching the doorway, sick, begging them to get her a doctor. She had just been thrown from her bed by a violent spasm. Fortunately, a Dr. Humphreys was summoned by another guest who heard the commotion. By the time he arrived, Jane was still clutching the doorframe, repeating that she was so sick. Bertha and May tried to convince her to get back in bed, but Jane refused, eventually sitting in a chair. With the help of the doctor, Bertha tried to induce vomiting with warm water, but Jane's jaw wouldn't unclench for her to drink it. And during his assessment of her, Humphreys noticed that Jane's limbs had become fixed, rigid, and set. May and Bertha rubbed her arms and legs in an effort to relax them. Bertha massaged Jane's face, and Jane was finally able to drink some water. Struggling to get the situation under control on his own, Humphreys summoned another doctor to get a stomach pump. Jane told him that she had been poisoned, 
and that while she'd been thrown from bed by a spasm, she currently wasn't in pain. Humphreys asked her what medication she took. She mentioned the cascara and the soda. Humphreys took the bottles, and when tasting the soda, noted its bitter taste. That bitterness is a strong indication of strychnine. He kept the bottles and continued trying to induce vomiting, but it didn't work. Sitting in the chair with May rubbing her legs and feet in a basin of warm water, Jane suffered another spasm. As the seconds passed, it became clear that Jane, the founder of Stanford University and one of the richest women of her time, was dying. In one final wretched effort, she spoke her final words. Oh God, forgive me for my sins. Is my soul prepared to meet my dear ones? This is a horrible death to die. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gravich, and this is Bitter Academia, Episode 4, A Horrible Death to Die. And with that, she was gone, her body locked in one last pose. The whole ordeal lasted only about 10 minutes. By the time a Dr. Day arrived with a stomach pump, it was too late. A third doctor, a Dr. Murray, was called to confirm what Humphreys feared. Jane was poisoned. They were able to make this determination pretty swiftly because despite the shock and confusion of the last few minutes, the doctors immediately recognized the signs of strychnine poisoning. With strychnine, it's painful, but it does not take a long time. Literally, people will die in minutes or a half hour. And it looks like it might be tetanus. Okay. Or it might be some other disease that attacks the nerves. But it basically causes people to go into a kind of paralysis. So that usually the actual cause of death is the fact that they can't breathe because their organs have just kind of seized up. So the body arches. It's really distinctive. I mean, the body, literally the person, the victim can't help it. Their, their whole body arches so that they're kind of resting on their head and their heels. And if a physician sees that, they will know. I wanted to understand what the doctors attending to Jane actually might have seen. So I spoke with Dr. Catherine Watson, an expert on the history of crime and forensic medicine at Oxford Brookes University in England over Zoom. With Catherine's insight, I learned why strychnine might have been chosen to end Jane's life. When does strychnine first come into sort of popularity in terms of its usage in crime? Good question. It was only really discovered and isolated in the early 19th century. And by the 1840s, people in Britain were using it as a rodenticide. So they knew about Nux vomica, which is the actual plant that you isolate strychnine from in the 17th century, and it was being used as rat poison. Okay. But once you can get it as the sort of crystalline, pure form, it's obviously going to be a lot more effective. So the earliest dates I'm aware of are the 1840s. It may be slightly earlier than that, but it wasn't actually isolated in crystalline form before the late sort of 18-teens or 20s by a German chemist. According to Catherine, isolated strychnine turns into a type of small crystal, closely resembling sugar or table salt. 
something that might not have been noticed if mixed in with a similar substance, like baking soda. And like some other poisons, it had a lot of uses. People used what we would now think of as poisons, like arsenic and strychnine, as medicines. Yes. So you could and have your doctor make up for you um, a solution of arsenic in, usually it's going to be water, but maybe in laudanum or something, or strychnine, yeah, as a tonic. Okay. Strychnine, arsenic is easier for me to tell you about. It was used for lots of stuff, especially um, medicines for curing topical skin problems and um, like acne or even cancer. Obviously, it didn't work. Okay. Strychnine was taken as a tonic, a kind of pick-me-up. And sometimes um, it would be used to adulterate beer or spirits because it just adds a little bit of a kick. Okay. Yeah, a little hint of death. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, 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 the aim was never to kill anybody. But in, in tiny amounts, that's what a lot of people thought it might be used for. Obviously, people understood that it was dangerous, um, or they wouldn't have been using it in rat poison. Strychnine was not necessarily the most popular means of poison at the time Jane died, but it was up there. The other type people often used was arsenic, which had its benefits and drawbacks. Arsenic is ages old. It's a classic poison, has been, well, since probably ancient times, like Roman times, because it's you don't need much. You can kill somebody. So a fatal dose is about two to three grains. A grain is 65 milligrams. It will, so say two milligrams um, will sit on the tip of a knife as a white powder. So it's a tiny physical amount and it's a white powder. So it looks like flour or powdered sugar and it dissolves pretty easily in water. So mix those things together, and it's a perfect poison. The downside of arsenic, though, was that it would take a long time for someone to actually die from it, sometimes weeks. With strychnine, it is a fast but far more painful death. This leads me to a question that plagued me since I started looking into this, and for which I still don't really have an answer. Did the person who killed Jane want her to suffer? So... Unlike with arsenic, where you linger vomiting and purging for two to three days, so everything's out of your system, with strychnine, it kills you so fast that the stuff is still in you. Okay. So if the doctor suspects anything, they will find it during an autopsy. This is what the coroner's jury and the doctors will find in their assessment of Jane's body. But in the following days, the narrative of Jane's last night alive would change. Witnesses would retract their statements and issue new ones. Different investigators would focus on other possibilities. And David Starr Jordan would orchestrate a blatant cover-up that would shock those involved. Just a warning, some of the details of Jane's death and the coroner's report are pretty graphic. Before midnight on February 28th, Dr. Humphreys left the hotel to report Jane's death to the Hawaiian authorities. He had in tow a sample of Jane's vomit, along with the spoon and tumbler used to mix her medicine. Immediately, a Hawaiian sheriff's deputy arrived at the scene 
and assembled a coroner's jury of various hotel employees and others present. When he alerted the Hawaiian authorities, Humphreys also sent word to Jane's brother, Charles, in Palo Alto. When the news made it across the ocean, the details of the case were unsettling enough that the acting chief of San Francisco police ordered the district attorney of Honolulu to have Jane's body analyzed for any evidence of a crime. On March 1st, the next day, Jane was sliced open between 9 a.m. and noon. A Dr. Clifford B. Wood conducted the autopsy in Queens Hospital with all three of the doctors present at varying times during Jane's death there as well. The doctors quickly ruled out a heart attack. Her symptoms were similar to only one other ailment, tetanus, which is caused by bacteria introduced through a puncture wound. But there were no wounds on her body. The doctors concluded easily. It was strychnine poisoning. But not all are willing to accept this version of events, despite the evidence. When he heard the news Jane had died, David didn't take any chances. While his exact motivations are not known, he had a lot at stake if Jane's death was ruled anything other than natural. If she was murdered, then an investigation would open up the university to all kinds of scrutiny that the struggling, fledgling school might not be able to recover from. For most people, a school where the founder was murdered is not exactly an attractive choice for higher education. The other concern was if Jane's death by poison would be considered a suicide. This possibility, even more than the first, could have placed the school's future in jeopardy. Just a few months earlier, the wife of one of Leland Stanford's former employees took her own life with rat poison containing strychnine. Like Jane, she was an older woman. It only took a small dose. While it's unclear if the two deaths are related, the method might have given some interested parties the ammunition they needed. The ammunition to contest Jane Stanford's will. A known and documented spiritualist, the argument could be made that Jane's concept of death was different from others and that she could have been seeking to reunite with her departed husband and son. I think strychnine comes up because it gets an awful lot of publicity precisely because the deaths are striking and horrible. And it is used for suicides a lot. Arsenic is rarely used for suicides, but it's often used for murders. This is Richard White again, the author of the book. His book convinced me that this was likely David's motivation in covering up Jane's murder. So if somebody's trying to make it look like you've committed suicide, I think strychnine would become your drug of choice. And I think at some point, when they first poison her, they're trying to make it look like it had been a suicide if it succeeds. Um, if it doesn't succeed, then they can pin it on murder as long as they couldn't trace it back to, back to them. But it's both drugs are available. Um, yeah. And the thing about strychnine is it's really easy to get if you're going to use the rat poison version. Exactly. Um, it's, just, it's just you can go in, you know, go into a store and buy it. In the eyes of the law, if she committed suicide, she wasn't in her right mind, leaving the door open for changing who and where Jane left her fortune. If her estate is challenged, then the university, which already is recovering from the earlier lawsuit by the government, is vulnerable. This is the disaster David Starr Jordan 
George Crothers, Charles Lathrop, and other university officials are trying to avoid, if they can. Protecting that legacy becomes more important than catching Jane's killer. While Charles Lathrop and Jane's lawyer, Mountford Wilson, hold down the fort at home, insisting to the press that Jane died a natural death, David and another board of trustee member, Timothy Hopkins, hop on the boat to Hawaii. Jane intended to fire both men upon her return. David is dragging along two others to help with his plan. The private detective originally tasked with solving the first poisoning attempt in Knob Hill, and a detective with the San Francisco Police Department. They're heading to claim Jane's body. But in reality, they're going to quell any rumors that Jane had died an unnatural death and to keep the school safe. Jane Stanford's love of spiritualism has been a constant during her later years. She relies on Bertha Burner as a medium and often attends seances and meets with mediums in an effort to stay connected to her boys. She even said that Leland Jr. came to visit her on a frequent basis, with his spirit staying with her for up to a week or so at a time. Richard White has a perspective on this too. When you were doing your research, did you come across like regular seance attendance or, or that kind of thing? There's a lot of stories about her attending seances and, the, and really one of the most convincing pieces of evidence. She's devoted to the church and the chapel mm -hmm. and everybody she goes out of her way to hire and look at to hire is a spiritualist. They're also a Christian minister because the two mm -hmm. are not antithetical. Mm -hmm. So everybody she wants around that church is going to be a spiritualist. It's going to drive David Starr Jordan crazy because there's no getting rid of them. She's giving this kind of respectability. So she will look, the first thing she's looking for is somebody who will um, allow her to make the church a combination of Christianity and spiritualism, and she finds them. Um, that's going to be true of everybody who, all the ministers that she becomes devoted to between the death of Leland Jr. and her own death. Mm, okay. In terms of the seances themselves, I mean, did she, I, I'm just sort of curious what she would find in those experiences. She wants to talk to Leland Jr. But I mean, if he's already visiting her, why why bother? Well, at a, <laughs> at a, at a certain point, that's a, that's a very good question because, in fact, one of the things she wants to do is have the mediums who can deliver them to her. Now, once the mediums have set it up, she insists that they come of their own volition. Okay. But at the same time, um, you know, I think she wants a, a further and more intense experience. She want, Literally what she'd like to see them is see them embodied in a room, and mm. I don't think she ever gets that. When people think of spiritualism, they often think of Ouija boards, ghosts projected into Victorian parlors, or maybe Patrick Jane from the hit TV show The Mentalist. That's certainly what I had in mind when I first started looking into this and heard about Jane's devotion to spiritualism as not just a religion, but a scientific pursuit. Just before her death, her brother-in-law, Thomas Welton Stanford, an avid spiritualist living in Australia, was given the opportunity to endow a chair in the psychology department to study spiritualism. I wanted to better understand what attracted Jane to spiritualism and what it might have looked like in her day as opposed to now. To start, I reached out to an expert. 
I'm Ann Browdy. I teach at Harvard Divinity School, where I direct the Women's Studies in Religion program, and I teach American religious history, uh, and I'm the author of Radical Spirits, Spiritualism, and Women's Rights in 19th Century America. Anne's name came up almost immediately in my research on spiritualism, particularly its influence on women in the latter half of the 19th century. In the first five minutes of talking with her over Zoom, I knew I'd come to the right place. Many people investigated spiritualism as a result of bereavement and really um, a kind of a, a rejection of the idea that death was a final separation. And so um, in part, this is a theological shift that is going on in the 19th century where we have really an enhanced idea of human agency and the ability of humans to um, uh, mess around with God's intentions and uh, with the finality of death. According to Anne and other historians I've spoken to on this story, this time period was also a time of massive scientific innovation. The invention of the telegraph, and the sudden ability to communicate so rapidly with people across the country paved the way for people to think, why can't you do that with the spirit world as well? I know really nothing about Jane Stanford, but it seems to me that in the context of someone who is founding a university, that this is very important, that spiritualists did not see themselves as opposed to science. They saw themselves as scientists. They saw themselves as people who were uh, conducting scientific exploration into the possibility of communication with the dead. There's an enormous appeal, uh, particularly as she experienced bereavements that are not expected, a 16-year-old son uh, who represents the future and promise. The birth of spiritualism began in 1848 in the United States in New York. Three adolescent sisters reported hearing rapping sounds within the walls of their home. And despite skeptics and investigations, the adults around them truly believed what they were witnessing was genuine. The movement was attractive during this time and especially took off in the latter half of the century, whether due to the echoes from the bloodshed of the Civil War or scientific innovation but it was heavily adopted by women, especially suffragists. Because prior to this, women were not expected or even permitted to address the public. People, it was their first experience of hearing a woman speak in public. Wow. They had never heard such a thing. And so for the mediums, they had a moral shield because they were not speaking on their own authority. They were passive vehicles. They would go into a trance and the spirit spoke through them. So they were not breaching the boundary of where it's appropriate for women to speak. Rather, it was the spirit who made that choice and took that initiative. And so the practice of mediumship was very important in allowing women and helping women to break through this boundary to attain a public voice and be able to address public audiences. 
It makes even more sense that Jane would be enamored with spiritualism in this respect. She too was a woman breaking boundaries. She herself was a quiet supporter of the suffragette movement and would help pay women's train tickets so they'd be able to go vote. My conversation with Anne was enlightening, but perhaps the most important lesson she imparted was to take this topic seriously. My knee-jerk reaction, I admit, was to make jokes and take Jane's claims that her son visited her after his death lightly. In today's world, it's an easy trap to fall into to be cynical. But this wasn't a laughing matter for Jane, and it certainly isn't for the people who believe in this. So, taking Anne's lesson to heart, I took my research a step further. I went out to find a church. Now that we're in person, we're doing a hybrid service. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. So we always broadcast it through Zoom meeting. That's nice, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I might pop by and see how that goes. Well, we're here every Sunday at 11. Okay, all right. That's, that's cool. It's a short walk, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. Only, I think like only 20 minutes for me. I'm okay. closer to Grace Cathedral, so. Yeah. 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 I'm sitting with David Haddock in one of the meeting rooms on the second floor of the Golden Gate Spiritualist Church in San Francisco. Balding with spectacles and a soft demeanor, David reminds me more of a college professor than what I'd imagined a spiritualist to be like. The building is itself a Gilded Age mansion right in my neighborhood of Knob Hill, just a short 15-minute walk from where the Big Four used to live. Outside, the church looks like any other turn-of-the-century San Francisco home. It's not as embellished as Stanford's mansion was, but it does have a frosting-like trim around the windows and the roof. Inside, however, you are greeted immediately by rows of red velvet movie theater-style seats arranged in a semicircle, facing a small raised platform. This is their pulpit and where their congregation sits. Since the pandemic, though, they've embraced virtual services. The spirit world is not limited by Zoom, apparently. With the dark wood paneling, the grand staircase in the middle, and the stained glass skylight, it's easy to tell that this is a Gilded Age home. The main room with the theater seats would have been the main entertaining space. Other rooms on the first floor add to this image. On the second floor, you can still tell that some of the rooms were originally meant to be bedrooms. A real home. And luckily, I have David to fill in the blanks for me as he shows me around, pointing out the lamps that are the original glass or the black and white photos lining the walls of the church's founders. David's family has been with the church since 1929. The church itself was formed in 1913, less than 10 years after Jane's death. Their founder, Reverend Becker, was a woman. If you look over your right shoulder there, you can see a snippet of the original wallpaper that was in this room. Look around the corner. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love old wallpaper. <laughs> yeah. I reached out to David because after speaking with Anne, I wanted to really understand what spiritualism meant to the people that practiced it, not the Hollywood version. I wanted to talk to you for a lot of reasons, but you know, for people who don't know, could you kind of just share a little bit about what spiritualism is? Spiritualism considers itself to be a science of philosophy and a religion. And it's, science comes first because we present evidence of life after death, 
continuity of the soul and the ability to communicate. Now, you can collect that evidence and study it for your own satisfaction, accepting or rejecting it. And that's entirely up to the individual. We don't have any dogma or creed. And we have no other requirements that you have tested this idea and found it true for yourself. We're religion because we do teach a way of life. And we're philosophy because we try to understand the cosmos. How does this all work? Why are we here? And all that sort of stuff. A lot of what David had to tell me, particularly about the history of spiritualism, tracked with what I'd learned. The movement was very anti-organization. Okay, this was, this was a bunch of people who weren't going to let anybody tell them what to do. And they were strongly opposed by the, by the, pre, the pre-resident churches in the, in the United States. Of course. And uh, it was easy to, to make fun of it and to ridicule it. But as time went on, it became obvious that the movement needed to organize to protect the mediums from basically being arrested and um, charged with fraud because it's it's easy to imitate what we do and charge money for it. I'm sure, yeah. Um, you You can see acts in Las Vegas that do what we do in some ways. So and it was this, I brought you the Centennial book because the National Spiritual Association of Churches uh, was formed in 1893. Okay. And it, I believe it was the first really organized spiritualist church or organization. Even calling it a church is somewhat problematic for a lot of people. Okay. And we have a lot of people come through our doors who are pretty skeptical about the word church. <laughs> so so we try so anyway, but that as in all transitional movements, you sort of take the old and you mix it with some new and you come up with something just a little different, not totally different. So that took place and probably because women have a tendency to be a little more sensitive sure. to other people. Somehow for some reason that that showed up in spiritualism as a preponderance of mediums being female. Mm-hmm. And it's probably still true. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, my wife is one of the mediums who works here in our church. Oh, okay. I was intrigued. David told me that the church works to empower those who join to learn to communicate with the spirits themselves. Because, again, it's, it's always been a teaching church. Okay. And... Um, again, because we do believe that these are innate abilities that everybody can develop. Not everybody has the ability, the talent, or the personality to do a public work, but everybody has the ability to be aware of spiritual influences and to, through concentration and meditation, become organized to have a, you know your spirit guides around you. Okay. And spirit guides is not an uncommon idea. No, They're yeah. sometimes called angels. But uh, all of this goes back forever. You know, this whole thing, it couldn't have been something that was invented in 1848 because it's part of who we are, part of what we are. David's words gave me an idea. I wasn't sure if he'd be open to it, but I figured there was no harm in asking. To my surprise, he was game. And 
this is how my podcast manager and I found ourselves sitting on the steps of the Stanford's mausoleum the Friday before Halloween in a loose circle with David and his wife, Melissa. Melissa has shoulder-length dark blonde hair and a quick smile. She definitely has a distinct energy to her. You find yourself speaking with her, and before you know it, an hour has passed. The mausoleum is on a quiet corner of the university's campus. Jane, Leland, and Leland Jr. have all been laid to rest inside, together. Just after 4 p.m., the air was already turning crisp and the light was softly filtering through the oak trees. The four of us had met here at my request. I wanted, hoped, that maybe I could make contact with Jane. I wanted to reach into the spirit world to connect with her. In order to do this, you don't need candles or chanting, according to my guides. Just the four of us. I'd thought about it a lot in the last few months. Jane was an avid spiritualist. If there ever was someone who might have something to say, something to communicate with the living, it stands to reason she might. The stone steps were cool to the touch, and I was soon lulled into a peaceful state by Melissa's voice. The only thing detracting from the atmosphere were the coils of black wires connecting to the microphones my podcast manager, Matt, had encircled us with. I had already spoken to Melissa by phone before this meeting. She told me a bit about herself, that she's been a practicing medium for three decades, and her college-aged daughter practices as well. She was also careful to outline what to expect from this experience with channeling, as they call it. She emphasized that she'd be going in without researching Jane, so as to keep the integrity of the channeling. Both she and David really impressed upon me the ways that channeling has been abused by others, and how the church takes steps to avoid that. For instance, their mediums do not accept money for their services. They also ask that participants not feed them information about themselves. So, as we gathered together that evening, I had no expectations for what might happen. Melissa also told me that it was entirely possible that whatever reading we did might be about me or Matt instead of Jane, that a spirit might want to tell us something about ourselves. The channeling began the way a meditation session might. We silenced our cell phones. So, how do we, how do we begin? Well, we're going to wait for Matt to sit down so that, remember, any distraction can break the connection. Yeah, that's okay, so. According to Melissa and David, the more people present for channeling, the stronger the connection might be, with all of us using our combined energy to make contact. But a distraction, like a plane flying overhead, which did happen at one point, can detract from the experience. Once we were all settled and microphones were in position, Melissa's voice guided us, with our eyes closed, to focus on a source of light. She described it as a lit candle. When we usually start a, a circle, we will start with a breathing meditation, um, uh, a breathing centering exercise. We would also then uh, begin with a visualization. But uh, since, we're, since we're new to this, I'm going to do um, just a, a small um, demonstration of that. And, and it's, it's Melissa clear. begins to speak. She takes us through the centering portion of the experience. And as a practitioner of meditation myself, 
I could feel my body relax. Bring our intentions into the center and focus on a common uh, thought. And I'm going to put the thought of light in the center here, light. Imagine it as a white light or a candlelight. Imagine in your mind's eye that there is, we've just lit a, a candle in the center. And as you put your focus and your attention on this flame, on the white light, to the exclusion of all else, the sounds that are around us or the planes or our wandering thoughts, just gently come back to the center and just focus on that white light. My, I'm visualizing now the, the energies organizing in our circle. And now I'm feeling them in a counterclockwise direction. And they're just passing amongst us, drawing us all together. Each one of us is a, is a battery of energy that helps amplify the whole. And bringing our energy deeper and deeper into the center, into that single flame of light. And as we do that, I can feel the light and the energy elevating and growing. Then, as she started to feel the energy, Melissa moved on to what I can only describe as a stream of consciousness reading. She spoke in a beautiful, unending thread, touching on themes of truth, integrity, passion, and openness. And as I touch into this beautiful energy, I'm already, I'm starting to see this, this, what we have have conjured here and it's starting to organize and I'm seeing a, geo, a, a geometrical pattern, a grid, but it's not, it's not um, equal, it's almost in all different shapes and diamonds and, and, uh, and different quadrants and it's a matrix that's just forming and uh, trying to come to shape. And you have asked to come here today, Natalia and Matt, to do this work to touch in with an open heart and an open mind, with sincerity and honesty. Time is passing, but I've lost all sense of it. As she keeps going, something comes through about me. And so as I touch into your vibration now, <laughs> I'm seeing like a whole collection of balloons. You know that uh, movie Up? Yes. <laughs> The house and the old man and the little boy. I'm, I'm seeing that. I'm, see, I'm seeing the balloon. Does that have any meaning for you? A uh, collection of balloons. Yep. That um, movie, The Up? Movie, The Up. Have you seen it? I have seen it. Um, okay. <laughs> no, okay. I love it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm seeing the, you know, the balloons that are, that, you know, that uh, are all piled high with, you know, in, in the bouquet and you're holding all the strings. <laughs> Now spirit comes and they bring me esoteric. Um, sometimes the you know the sometimes a balloon is just a balloon, and sometimes it has another meaning. And uh, uh, it could be a metaphor for something else, um, upliftment perhaps. And that is for you to discern your truth, whether or not that feels right to you. And and so as a receiving as you're receiving a reading um, from from a medium, um, it is a two-way or rather three-way relationship. It's something between uh, you, me, the spirits, and we meet in the, in the center of that. And so it is, it is, there is that give and take. We always say don't, uh, you know, feed the medium, don't give me any information that I haven't 
you know, given you, uh, you it's either a, um, an affirmation or no, I, I can't place it right now, that's okay. I but tried to place it. I didn't have a context for Up other than it was a movie that I loved when I was a kid. But the fact that it was a movie about an old man looking for meaning did make something flicker inside me. My grandpa Boris on my father's side had passed away the previous summer at the age of 93. It was a stretch, so I chose not to say anything to Melissa at that moment. I wanted to see what happened next. She continued feeling things out, getting other messages. For Matt, she mentioned a specific date in December that might have some significance. When she returned to me, she said she was getting something that did catch my attention. Now, I'm touching in with you, um, Natalia. I'm feeling January. Ooh, yeah, it's the second week of January for you as well. Hmm, I'm seeing 13 to 16, so that three-day, 13, 14, 15, so that's four days. Okay, don't ask me why, I just get this imprint. See, my family is Russian on both sides. For certain major holidays, we tend to follow the Russian Orthodox calendar, like for Easter and New Year's. The coming Russian New Year's celebration is on January 14th, right in the middle of the spectrum Melissa mentioned. My family didn't do much for it this past year, but it was a holiday we had enjoyed celebrating at times with my grandparents, including Boris. Perhaps he was trying to tell me something, to have a nice party this year, which we didn't have the first new year without him. She even mentioned other details as well, including the smell of cider, which my dad had recently started brewing himself from scratch with apples from our backyard tree. I decided to keep this piece of the puzzle to myself until the end, I didn't want to accidentally feed the medium. Towards the end, Melissa did touch upon Jane, and something did come through. I'm I'm hearing music as as um, as the energy is coming. It's coming, you know, to a close now, and I'm hearing music. And the music is the bells in the bell tower, and there is a song that's playing. And I don't know if they have a similar uh, David. I don't know if they have a similar bell tower as the Campanile in in um in uh, Cal campus, but um, I'm hearing the Stanford bell tower and I'm hearing um, a song. And, um, and I've never been there, so I don't know. I've never visited the actual campus, so I don't know, but I'm hearing that and it's re- the, the, the sound is resonating and, I, and um, it's playing a song that would have been well known in her day. And this is a little homework assignment for you, Natalia to research if they have um, some kind of, uh, you know, a bell system that plays a, a, a tune or a, or a melody of a, of a song um, that would have been um, familiar in, you know, the founding of the campus. The bell tower on campus was before Jane's time, but the memorial church, which Jane had built herself and was one of her most treasured buildings, had bells. Melissa told me, as a little homework assignment, to look into if there are any recordings of the church bells, that there might be some significance there. I don't know if she you know, were very uh, instrumental and important to her, blah, 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 to, to help bring the energy of her, you know, as she communed with her son's uh, spirit. Okay, okay. Um, it could it could have um, been his favorite or or something. I, I'm not sure, but that is what's resonating there. 
and uh, this could also add some more dimension to your your beautiful project here um, as a soundtrack background. Ooh, I'm getting the chills. Does that I, make sense? I got some full body tingles when you start <laughs> started talking about the bells and the music. I didn't want to say anything. And it's true. Part of me felt silly, but I did feel a tingle course through me when Melissa brought this up. I wasn't sure what to chalk it up to. The fading light as the afternoon faded into evening. But even so, the timing felt auspicious. With that, Melissa wrapped up our time, which wound up clocking in at almost a full hour. I was shocked so much time had passed. I would have guessed maybe 30 minutes. And with that, we give blessings upon all those who are here. May they be wisely guided in the days and weeks ahead, weeks ahead. And may their highest natures be open and resident, resident, resident to the sounds, the frequencies, and the truths that are coming to them to be discerned and to be expressed and learned. And with that, we give a, we give a gratitude for touching in today and thank you. I always thank all of the unseen and seen who've come today to allow us to do this work. I'm so grateful for the highest and all my guides. In truth's name, amen. We exchanged chit-chat as Matt and I broke down the equipment and then bid each other goodbye. I was struck by how peaceful the experience had been. I'd gone in with an open mind and no expectations. I didn't think I was necessarily going to reach Jane and she'd reveal a clue to solving her murder. No, that's not what I thought was going to happen. But I wanted to embark on this journey to feel closer to her to understand her better and why this was so important to her. And I think I achieved that. That sense of peace, of connectedness, would have been a balm for a woman who'd lost those dearest to her. It certainly was for me. Unfortunately, the one thing she took solace in all those years at the end of her life would become a reason for those close to her to cover up how she'd died. Spiritualism was just as misunderstood then as it is now, and her interest in it, combined with the poison, would have created too many opportunities for questions, for challenges. Next time on Bitter Academia, David Starr Jordan races to contradict the findings of the first coroner's report and alter the narrative of Jane's death. And in doing so, he finds an unlikely ally. Bertha Burner and Jordan, they clearly are working together because I, in a sense, because she is um, giving him documents for one reason or another. In the end, I thought, well, he had the motive, he might have had the means. And we meet someone who is closer to Jane than anyone else I've spoken to so far, but unlike the others, is less interested in the mystery around her death and more interested in preserving her life. We have several trunks from Leland and Jane Stanford. Bitter Academia is an Odyssey original podcast, researched, reported, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich, edited by Myron Kaplan and Matt Pittman. 
Production, engineering, and sound design by Matt Pittman. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Bitter Academia on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.